Good morning. Uh, well, Peter did basically preach my sermon, so I'll just pray, which seems appropriate with the sermon on prayer, and then we can do the last few songs and we'll be done. No. Uh, so we are in the middle of a big question series, like Peter was saying, and it's been great to see all the different questions that you guys have. There have been a lot of fun ones. It's unfortunate that we have more questions than we have weeks in the summer, so there are some we won't be able to preach on, but uh, they've all been really good, really good. So today's questions, we've got a few questions on prayer. And the original question, as it was posed to us, or questions are, how effective is prayer, given that God always has the option to say no to whatever I ask? Is it possible to change God's mind? I've heard people say that prayer is more about aligning our heart with God's. If that's true, then why ask for anything except to be aligned with God? So, some great questions there. Those questions of, you know, well, if God's really in control of things and has a plan for how things are going, then how can prayer really matter? Like, if I ask him to do something, then it's what he was already going to do, then it's just going to happen anyway. And if I ask him to do something that's not what he was going to do, then it's not going to happen anyway. So really, what's the point of praying? Because either way, whatever God thought was going to happen is going to happen. But if that's not true and things actually do change, does that mean I can change God's mind? And that's interesting, if that's true. And then, how, how does that work? How do I change his mind in some of the ways I want to? And then, well, if there is really no point to prayer in terms of things actually changing, and prayer is more about God changing us than actually changing circumstances or events that are happening, well, if that's the only point, I mean, everything that happens as a believer is a part of God changing us. So then do we really need to pray? Because that's already happening as we're here on a Sunday morning, as we interact with friends and family who are believers, as we spend time uh, in the Bible and doing other things like that. So uh, that's the question that was originally posed. The summarized question, which will seem like it gives uh, not enough merit to the original, is if God is sovereign, why should we pray? So those reasons I just explained. And in this summarized question, we will specifically answer the three points from that bigger question. But it's just a lot easier to reference a one-sentence question than a paragraph question. So if God's sovereign, why should we pray? Uh, before we answer, we're going to define a few terms so that we're all on the same page. We're going to define sovereign and define prayer. So sovereign, and this is just a dictionary definition, Supreme or unlimited power or authority. So if God is sovereign, that means he has supreme or unlimited power or authority. Uh, there are a few places in Scripture where it talks about God being sovereign. First Timothy 6 is a nice summary verse about that. Talking about God the Father, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So in this we see some of those things. King of kings and Lord of lords, the king who is above all other kings, the Lord who is above all other lords. We see in that uh, the idea of unlimited authority. Eternal dominion a kingdom that just goes on as far as he wants it to. He has dominion over all things, over all people, over the universe, over time, over everything. So uh, that is a picture of God's supreme and unlimited power and authority. 
The other term we're going to define is prayer. And prayer, uh, this definition is not necessarily all-encompassing, but encompasses kind of the big points of what prayer is. Talking to God, it's easy to think of prayer as something that can be really intricate or uh, really kind of a high church type of thing filled with a lot of ceremony, like, oh, okay, what's the pose? Do I have to kneel when I pray? Should I bow down? I suppose it depends on what type of prayer, and then eyes closed or open, and how, what do I do with my hands while I'm praying? But just generally, generally, prayer is talking to God, especially to request things of God, so to ask him for things, or to give him praise or thanks, either for who he is or for things he's already done, whether for us or just in general in the world. Uh, so this is what prayer is, and prayer is something God wants us to do. Uh, the question, why should we pray? Part of the answer, uh, not the biggest part necessarily, is it's something God tells us to do and wants us to do. And in general, in life, we don't like that answer. Why should I do this? Well, because I said so. But the truth to it. So uh, Psalm 50 and Philippians 4 and many other verses hit on that, but I just picked one Old Testament, one New Testament. So Psalm 50, 12 through 15 this is God talking. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Make thanksgiving your sacrifice to God. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So God's saying, he's talking to the Israelites as they're thinking about the sacrifices they have to do he says, you know I don't need these sacrifices, right? It's not like I'm hungry and I'm waiting for you to bring me a bowl so you can sacrifice it and I have something to eat for lunch. He says, everything in the world is mine. I don't even eat food as you're thinking of it. But if I did and I needed a bowl to eat, I wouldn't come to you and ask you. I'd just go out to a field somewhere or out to a forest. I'd kill the animal myself and eat it because it belongs to me. I would just take what's mine. So he says, I'm not really impressed with all the sacrifices you do. Make thanksgiving your sacrifice to God. Give thanks to me. That's what delights me. That's what impresses me. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Pray to me. Ask me for things when you're in trouble. And then I'll come deliver you. And you will give me glory. And then Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So are you anxious about something? Do you have something difficult going on in your life? What's God want you to do with that? Not try and figure it out on your own. Not just say, well, I'll just take care of it or I'll get help from uh, a friend. But bring it to God. Tell God what it is. God, I mean, it's one of those things where God says, tell me what's going on when he already knows what's going on because he's God. So when we come to God and pray, we don't have to dress ourselves up or use fancy words. You know, if that's how you talk, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But you don't have to pretend to be something because when you come to God, God already knows. So when you're angry about something and you come to God to pray, then pray an angry prayer because you are angry. And when you're happy, pray a happy prayer. When you're sad, pray a sad prayer and so on and so forth. Um, now, So that's kind of the framework and the groundwork. And now, uh, since it is a sermon on prayer, I'll pray and then we'll get into it. God, thanks for today. And thank you for your word. Thank you that we can approach you in prayer. That's an awesome, staggering thing. Uh, God, I pray that uh, for all of us, myself included, this sermon would be something that encourages us to come to you more often and to see you as someone uh, who loves us and cares for us 
and wants to answer our prayer and wants to give us things that are good. Amen. So if God is sovereign, why should we pray? The first reason uh, and the most important reason is because of the gospel, which if you've been at Hiawatha at all, you would expect that. The gospel comes up a lot because it's a big deal and the central deal. So Hebrews 4 talks about this, uh, talking about Jesus. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the high priest in the Old Testament, uh, there were priests in Israel, and they were the ones that the people, when they sinned, would come and bring either an animal or a food sacrifice, and they would bring it to the priests, and if it was an animal, the priests would be the ones to actually kill it, and there were certain ways you had to kill it and things you did with it, and then they would burn it on an altar, and so they would offer this uh, sacrifice to God. So the priests were the people that kind of stood in between the people and God. The people would go to the priest, the priest would do something, and then God would hear that and forgive the person of sin or whatever type of sacrifice it was. The high priest was kind of the head priest, and so um, in some ways closer to God in terms of that process. So here it's saying the great high priest, the ultimate high priest is Jesus Christ, who the gap that existed between God and people because of sin, so priests would do that, but in Hebrews it also says the priests had to do that all the time, every day. There was a sense in which it didn't work because they would offer this sacrifice, then the next day they'd have to offer it again, and the next day they'd offer it again, and over and over and over you had to keep doing this. And the priests had to offer sacrifice for their own sin, not just the other people's. Then Jesus comes, and it says, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, he offered for one time a sacrifice that's effective for all people for all time. So it's not like every 10 years Jesus comes back to earth and dies again. You know, he doesn't have to renew that sacrifice. He did it once, and it works forever. And because of that, we can draw near to God. Because of that, the distance that existed between us and God has been shortened and taken away. And so the fact that we even can pray, I mean, this is something for me, growing up uh, in a Christian home, going to church ever since I was a kid, this is something I take for granted all the time. It's like, well, of course I pray to God. Like, I can do that. You know, that's what I do. I enjoy that. But I don't really think about often how incredible it is that that's even possible, that God, who is holy and righteous and good in every way possible, and I, as a sinner, who am the opposite of that in every way possible, that Jesus makes it possible for me to enter into God's presence and not be destroyed and not be turned away, that God will listen to my prayers, that he hears what I say, and that he responds to that, that he cares about what I pray. So the gospel is the reason we're able to pray. Not only is the gospel the reason we're able to pray, uh, but also when we pray, every time we pray, it's a declaration of the gospel. So John 16, Jesus is about to be crucified at this point. He's kind of telling his disciples, here are the things that are going to happen. And then uh, he says, you know, I'm going to be crucified. You're going to be really sad, but then I'm going to rise from the dead. You'll be really happy, and you'll have a joy that no one can take away. And in that day, so after I've been raised from the dead and this has all been accomplished, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you 
because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So have you ever thought of that? When we pray, now it's only because of Jesus that we're able to pray, but when I, I pray, I don't need to pray to Jesus and say, all right, Jesus, tell the Father this. I can pray directly to the Father because the Father himself loves, and loves me and hears my prayers. And the reason for that is because of Jesus, because I love, have loved Jesus and believes the, the, believed that he came from God. And that's true of all of us. It's not like because I'm up here preaching that I have special access to God through that. That's something that every believer has. We love Christ. We believe that he died and rose for our sins. We love him because he loved us first. And out of that, God sees that and he says, yes, you love my son. And I love that. I love it when people love my son. And I love you. And so now I can go directly to God the Father and ask for things. I don't have to go, it happens because of Christ, but I don't have to talk to Christ and have him relay it. So every time we pray to the Father, it's a declaration and a demonstration of the gospel. Because every time we pray to the Father, we're doing something that's only possible because of the gospel. And that's anything, like you pray for your food. You pray for nice weather for a day you want to stand outside. It's not just the big prayers, whatever that means. But anytime we pray, we are declaring the gospel. Anytime we pray to God. So, why should we pray? Because of the gospel, primarily. Because of God's love. Because it's a declaration of the gospel. Also, because of God's power. Um, Isaiah 40, God is speaking, uh, and this is in the middle of a chapter where he's talking about idols and how they're worthless and how he's better than idols. And then near the end of the chapter, he says, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. He says, you people are going after idols. You're praying to pieces of wood and stone and metal, and you think that this is helpful. You think that they can do something. He says, you think those things are my equal? Walk outside and look up at the sky. Look at the sun and the moon and the stars. I put all of that there. I created all that. The path and orbit of every star, of every planet, holds together because I hold it together. My power and my strength keep the universe moving as it should be moving. And not only do I do that, but I know every single body that's out there in the heavens. Every single one. I know its name. I know where it is. I know how it moves. Which is staggering. You know, we don't even know exactly how many stars and planets are in the universe. But, you know, you've all looked up outside and seen the sky filled with points of light, and it's astonishing. And to look at that and think, everything that's up there, which if I spent the whole night I couldn't even count, God doesn't even have to count. He knows where all of those are. He knows what ways they're moving. He knows their names. And not only does he know it, but he holds it together. He keeps it going. Um, often in Scripture, God will point to nature when he's talking about his power, he'll compare his power to nature and say it's greater than this thing in nature or look at this thing in nature because nature is powerful. He'll talk about storms. He'll talk about the ocean and the sea. He'll talk about uh, fire. He'll talk about the heavens. And so, uh, yeah, God is powerful. So ironically, if God is sovereign, why should we, we pray? Well, actually, we pray because God is sovereign. We pray not in spite of God's sovereignty. We pray because of it. 
Because if God isn't sovereign, if he doesn't have all power and authority, then we ask him for things and he might not be able to do it. Right? Because when we pray, when we're asking God for things, what are we doing? We're saying, God, this is happening. This situation, this course in my life, it's going this direction, and I want you to shift it and make it go this direction. God, I've got this illness. It's going this direction. I want you to shift that and take that illness away. God, I don't have a job. That's going in this direction. I want you to shift that and give me a job. So whenever we pray, when we're praying for things, we're asking God to change what's happening. We're asking God to be sovereign. We're asking him to be powerful. So we pray because of God's sovereignty, not in spite of it. So we pray because of the gospel. We pray because of God's love. We pray because God is powerful. And finally, we pray because prayer is effective. Um, it does not always seem that prayer is effective when we pray to us. So we'll talk about what that means. But prayer is effective. And this, uh, we're going to break down in a couple different things. And this is where we're going to now answer those specific questions that were posed. Prayer is effective. Uh, one of the ways prayer is effective is God answers prayer. God does answer prayer. So this brings up the question, all right, if God answers prayer, if he responds to things that we pray, does that mean we can change God's mind? Does prayer change God's mind? Is it possible to change God's mind? The short answer is no. So a few verses uh, from Numbers, Titus, and Hebrews. The Numbers verse, uh, God is uh, talking through someone else. God is not man that he should lie. Or a son of man, that he should change his mind? Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? So God says, people lie, and people change their minds. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. He says, I'm not like that. If I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it. If I say something's going to happen, it's going to happen. I don't lie, I don't change my mind. So there's kind of that uh, piece of it. And then in Titus... Right at the beginning of the book, the author, Paul, is talking about uh, eternal life in the gospel and what Jesus did on the cross and the hope that comes through that. And this is just a fragment of a larger thought. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So first God says, I don't lie, I don't change my mind. And now Paul kind of ups the ante a little bit. He says, God never lies. It's not just that in general God doesn't lie, he never lies. God has never lied. And then you go to Hebrews, and here God is, uh, in Hebrews, this passage, God is referencing back to a promise he made to Abraham. And he's like, when people make a promise, sometimes they'll use an oath to ratify it. And when you use an oath, you swear by something or vow to something greater than yourself. So we say things like, I swear on the Bible, or I swear on my mother's grave, or whatever it is. We invoke something that makes people kind of sit up and say, oh, they're really serious about this. They're really going to do this. And God says, well, when I swear, when I vow, there's nothing greater than me, so I vow by myself. And then I remind you of that to show that it comes true. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. And then it goes on to explain what the oath was and how it's convincingly shown and doesn't change. But uh, God wanted to convince the heirs, so the descendants of the people he'd made this promise to, that his purpose and his character wouldn't change. And so he guaranteed it with an oath. And in doing that, uh, it was effective 
because he swore by himself. So it's like, well, is that really effective? And it is because it's impossible for God to lie. So first, God doesn't lie or change his mind, and God's the one who says that through a prophet. And then Paul kind of ups the ante, he says God never lies. Then Hebrews ups it even more, says it's impossible for God to lie. So even if for some reason he wanted to, which he doesn't, he can't lie. God cannot lie. So, um, and if God said in Numbers that he doesn't change his mind, then he can't lie about that. So God does not lie or change his mind. But some of you sitting there right now might be thinking, ah, tricky preacher. He pulls a few verses from different places of the Bible, and one of them is only a piece of a verse. And he says God, can't, God doesn't change his mind, but I can show you a whole book of the Bible where God does change his mind. But of course he won't talk about that, but we will. So we're going to talk about the book of Jonah for a minute, and we're also going to look at Ezekiel 33, and if we had time, we would do the whole book of Jonah, but we don't have time for that. So we're just going to do uh, some various verses from it. So the beginning of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amadi, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So if you look on a map, and you look at where Nineveh is on a map, Tarshish is about as far away from Nineveh as you can get across a big body of water. So God comes to this prophet named Jonah, says, there's the city Nineveh, it's a great city, it's evil has come up before me, the people in it are evil, they do a lot of horrible things, so I want you to go and I want you to basically prophesy against the city. And Jonah says, nope, I'm going to go the other direction. And then you have the rest of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 where Jonah finds out trying to run away from God usually isn't the best idea. So he gets caught in a storm as he's on this big body of water. The sailors end up throwing him overboard. He gets swallowed by a big fish. He's in the fish for three days, which gives him a lot of time to think because there's not much else you can do when you're inside a fish. And he thinks, perhaps this was not my best life choice. (laughs) And then the fish vomits him up. And and then, chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So the same thing he says, All right, we've been through that, now go to Nineveh, and I'll give you the message when you get there, and then uh, proclaim that message against them. So Jonah, Jonah arose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And so he goes to Nineveh, he gets there, and he starts walking through the city, and as he does, he's calling out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So he's going through the city basically declaring 40 days and God's going to destroy your city. You guys have done a lot of evil. God's not happy with this. He's going to wipe you out. So the people hear this obviously and word gets to the king of Nineveh and he kind of freaks out a little bit because he's heard some things about the God that Jonah worships and prophesies for and he's like, hmm, this might be really bad. So he sends out different edicts to the people and says, all right, everyone, Everyone take off your nice clothes, all the nice things you have, put on ratty clothes, sit in the dust on the ground, pour dust on yourself. Basically, things in that culture, he's saying, humble yourselves. We need to humble ourselves. This is really bad. God's going to wipe us out. We need to do something about this. And then he says, no one's going to eat any food, including me. We're not going to eat. We're going to do this. We're going to show God that we're taking him seriously and that we want some change. We don't want to be wiped out. So they do all this. And then verse 10 of chapter 3, after they've done this, God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So it seems as if these verses in Jonah are kind of a problem with what I said from the other verses, where I said God doesn't change his mind, and now God says to Jonah, go to these people and tell them 40 days, and I'm going to destroy you. And he doesn't give like an if. He doesn't say, tell them 40 days, and if they don't repent, I'm going to destroy them. This is what's going to happen. And then Jonah goes, he declares the message, the people turn from that and repent, and God says, okay, they repented, I'm not going to do it. It's like, wait a minute, what just happened here? How does that work? So, the way it works uh, is explained in Ezekiel 33. So, God in Scripture sometimes when he is talking, uses what you could call a verbal shorthand, almost, and he fleshes out in Ezekiel 33 kind of the full version of that. So starting in verse 11, and then some various verses following, again, a passage where God is speaking through a prophet. And the prophet's going to declare some things to some people. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Though I say to the righteous that he shall surely live, Yet if he trusts in his righteousness and does injustice, none of his righteous deeds shall be remembered. But in his injustice that he has done, he shall die. Again, though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. So, In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, where you have these prophets who quite often are going either to Israel or other nations and declaring, you know, your sins come up from the Lord, before the Lord, you're going to be destroyed in, you know, right now, or 40 days from now, or three months from now, or whatever it is. Whenever a prophet goes and declares something like that to people, you have to have in mind this passage from Ezekiel 33, because there are lots of times where a prophet will go declare that to a people, they'll repent, and then God doesn't destroy them. And there are times where the flip is true, especially with Israel, where God will say to them, I'm going to bless you now. I'm going to give you all this stuff. I'm going to give you protection from your enemies and bountiful harvests and all these other things. And then Israel uh, embraces that for a short time, then uh, gets kind of high on themselves and think, well, we're doing pretty good. We don't really need God. We're going to just ignore him now and do whatever we want. And then God takes away all those things he's promised. But the reasoning is in this. So when God's doing that, Although from what we have of the words he speaks, it appears he's changing his mind, from his greater mindset of how he works with people, he's not changing his mind. Because he always has in mind when he's saying, so when he sends Jonah to Nineveh and says, declare to them 40 days and you're going to be destroyed, in his mind and the way he works, if you were to give kind of the verbal longhand instead of the shorthand, um, it would be, Something along these lines. Jonah goes to Nineveh and declares, Ninevites, you have done great evil before the Lord. And he has sent me to tell you 40 more days and you will be destroyed. But don't think that God does this because he delights in destroying people. He doesn't. He doesn't delight in destroying anyone. He rathers that everyone would turn from their evil to him and be saved. And so I tell you this in the hope that it will stir your hearts. And you will turn from the evil you're doing to God. And then the disaster that he's proclaimed for you will not happen. 
Because anytime he declares to someone, a nation, a person, that they're going to be destroyed, his hope in that is that they would turn from that so that he doesn't destroy them. And any time that God declares to someone they're going to be blessed, and they take advantage of that and turn from that, God will take that away. So that's how those two fit together, because this, uh, the Ezekiel 33 mindset of God, is always present when he's saying it. But he doesn't always have the prophets declare this entire thing. He gives them that verbal shorthand. So, um, yeah. so is it possible to change God's mind? No. God's mind cannot be changed. And in times in Scripture, so almost every time in Scripture where it appears he changes his mind, it's this situation. There are a few that are a little different because of time. It's a similar thing. It's just a different passage you would look at. But basically it's the same idea that God appears to change his mind, but he's only like telling part of everything that's going on in his head at the moment. So he's not actually changing his mind. But almost all the situations in Scripture where it seems he changes his mind are this type of situation. And then uh, if any of you have questions about any of the other few, if they come to mind, we can certainly talk about that. But no, God does not change his mind. So, all right, if God doesn't change his mind, then how is prayer effective? God answers prayer. Does he really answer prayer? What does that even mean if he doesn't change his mind? So Matthew 7. This is Jesus talking in the middle of what's commonly called the Sermon on the Mount where he was on the side of a mountain and teaching a bunch of different things to people. And he teaches, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks for bread will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Again, uh, the first half of this passage seems very absolute. God doesn't do any ifs, ends, or buts. It's ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds, the one who knocks, it will be opened. And yet, each of us, myself included, can think of times when we prayed, when we prayed for something that was not given to us, and we did not find it. And uh, what we wished to be opened was not opened. So how then can Christ say here that this is true? There are a couple pieces to this. One is... Uh, there are many ways, all of us to some degree, myself included, have things we think about of how prayer is that are false and just wrong. But there are a couple big ones that tend to pop up a lot that prayer is not. So we're going to talk about that for a minute. One, prayer is not a vending machine. So if you look at this vending machine, unfortunately the god is out of order. And they are out of miracles and healing. Salvation is available. Financial provision, apparently. Spiritual deliverance. Awkwardly enough, the one in the top left, there's not actually a number for, so apparently it's not possible to get real Bible faith, which seems like a bummer. But for some of us, we think of prayer like a vending machine. You know, you go to a vending machine, you look at how much the item you want costs, you put in your money, punch the number, and out pops what you want. So we think of prayer in the same way. It's like, all right, I go to God, and I give him enough, whatever that means, 
uh, enough humility, enough words, the right posture. I put that in, and then it's like, all right, God, I want A3. And then I wait for God to pop that out for me. But that's not how prayer works. So prayer is not a vending machine. Prayer is also not Harry Potter. <laughs> so hopefully none of you thought prayer was Harry Potter, but if so, it's not. And what I mean by this is prayer is not magic. So some people think of prayer almost as if it's some kind of incantation. Like if I say the right words in the right order, or if I have the right posture, then God has to respond. Prayer is like some kind of magical incantation. Like in Harry Potter, they say these words in Latin in the right order, and then things happen, and they can make things happen by saying it right. And so sometimes we think of prayer like that. Oh, I prayed, but I didn't get what I prayed for. I must not have prayed the right words, or I didn't say it quite right. So we think of prayer in this way, but that is not what prayer is. Prayer is not magic. Prayer is not an incantation. And finally, prayer is not a spiritual gift. So uh, in Scripture, and this one might be surprising, it's like, what? What do you mean it's not a spiritual gift? So spiritual gifts in Scripture are things, if you're a believer, you have a spiritual gift from God. And that's whether you've been a Christian for 10 seconds, if it just happened, or for 50 years. And people have different spiritual gifts. Paul talks about this in the book of 1 Corinthians, and he says there's a ton of spiritual gifts. And God divides them up among people as he wants to, but not everyone has every spiritual gift. So I'm standing up right here right now preaching and teaching. Hopefully I have the gift of preaching and teaching. Not everyone in this room has the gift of preaching and teaching. We would not expect everyone to come up here and preach a sermon. And if you sit in uh, one of the pews on Sunday ever and think, man, I would never want to do that, that's not necessarily a bad thing to think because you might not have that gift. People have lots of different gifts. Some people think of prayer as a spiritual gift. So you pray, and maybe it doesn't work. Uh, you don't get what you want, and you think, oh, well, prayer just isn't my spiritual gift. I'll just do other stuff instead. Uh, there are many spiritual gifts in the Bible, but there are a few things which are not spiritual gifts. Prayer is one, love and the other fruit of the Spirit are another. Those are things that are expected of all believers. God expects that every believer will pray. You can't just say, well, prayer isn't my gift, so I just won't do it. Love is another one. You can't just say, well, love isn't really my gift, so I just won't work on that. Prayer is not a spiritual gift. Prayer is something that God expects of every believer and uh, that he, uh, he helps every believer as they pray. So, back to Matthew 7. Uh, how effective is prayer, given that God always has the option to say no to whatever I ask? So, another problem we have with prayer, one problem is we have a bad mindset of what prayer is. Another problem is we have a bad mindset of God when we go to pray. So we think of God as, okay, he's sitting there, he's waiting for us to pray, pray and he's going to like measure our prayer. It's like, well, that prayer's about a 6 out of 10. So I'll give you part of that. It's like, ooh, that prayer was a 9 out of 10. Even Old Testament scripture quotations in that prayer. We'll, we'll definitely answer that one. That's not how prayer is. Look at the second half of this passage. Prayer with God, God is like a father. So he is not like a judge. He is not like a professor waiting to grade you on your prayer. He's like a father. So when a kid wants to ask their father for something, what do they do? A young kid especially, they just go up to them and just ask him for it. You know, they don't think about, oh, how am I dressed? Oh, how am I using the right words? No, they're just like, I want this. And the father, uh, assuming uh, they're a good father and they have a healthy relationship with their child, they love their child. And they want to give their child 
good things. They want, in general, just to give their child things. They delight in that, but then especially to give them good things. So with prayer, we also have to keep in mind that God is like a father to us. And so when we go to God to ask for something, God desires to give us things and desires to give us good things. A child who goes out trick-or-treating comes home and asks their father if they can eat all their Halloween candy right then. Hopefully their father will say no to that. And the kid will be really mad. They're like, well, you don't care about me. That's not fair. Candy's great. You let me go trick-or-treating and collect candy. Why can't I eat it all now? But the father knows that if the kid eats all the candy right then, he might feel good while he's eating the candy, but he's not going to feel good after he eats the candy. So he knows that it's not good for him. So part of it is we come to God and we pray, and we have this mindset of this is what's good for me right now. This is what I need. And God says, no, your mindset's like the kid who just came home from Halloween. You think that this is what you need. You think this is what's best for you, but it isn't. So I'm not going to give it to you. I'm not saying no to you because I'm mean. I'm saying no to you because this isn't going to be helpful for you right now. This is not a loving thing for me to give you right now. And there are some things where we can all agree to that. You know, It's like, okay, God, I pray for a Lamborghini. Because if I had a Lamborghini, when I'm getting together with people, I'll tell them about you. I could get there much faster and spend more time. And when they're riding in the Lamborghini with me and the car is so expensive, they could think about the riches of God and how he blesses people. <laughs> and when I say that, you all laugh. Because we all say, well, that's a ridiculous prayer, you know? I mean, it's possible God could give someone a Lamborghini, but that reasoning, God's going to say, no, you don't really have the right mindset there. That's not true. So it's easy with something like that. It's a lot harder with something like, God, I've got cancer, and I pray for you to take that away. And God says, in your mindset, what's best for you right now is to be healed from cancer. But I can see a bigger picture. And although you don't believe this right now, that's actually not what's best right now. Or we pray for someone who's not a believer and we pray, God, I pray that you would save that person. And God says, I'm not going to save that person right now. And you have no understanding in your mind of why that's a good thing. Why would you not save someone now instead of later? How is it better for someone to spend more time apart from you? But I see a bigger picture. And although you can't see it right now, what I'm doing here is best. Um, the girl I did in high school, her parents were missionaries in Africa, and her dad was a doctor in Africa, and he had all kinds of crazy stories of things he had to do outside of his specialty, like, yeah, you're in the clinic, and someday, one day someone just comes in, they need eye surgery, and I've never done eye surgery, and I don't really know how, but you're the only one there, so you do it, and you pray, and hope it goes well. So, but he was telling some of these, <laughs> I know you're here, it's like, oh, I kind of want to ask how it went, but I kind of don't want to know how it went. But he was telling some of these stories, and he said at the end of it, and he had commented about something that was just really cool in this person who was close to death that he saved. And I don't remember the exact comment I made, but something like, wow, that's so cool that you were able to do that. And he looked at me, and I was about to say, I've never forgotten this, but I can't actually remember the exact wording. But <laughs> the gist of what he said, he looked at me and he said, Jesse, the greatest medical miracle that someone can pull off the greatest surgery they can do, the person who's right on the edge of death that they can bring back. At the end of the day, the best that ever is, is just a delay. It's just a temporary measure, because that person that you heal is going to die again someday. And of course, and I mean, he was a doctor, so he believed it was worthwhile to do those things. He believed there was purpose in that. 
But there are times when we pray and we think like that. You know, God, I've got cancer. I want you to heal me. Well, God can heal you. And that's a great prayer to pray. I'm not saying don't pray that. But at the end of the day, that person, even if God heals them of cancer, they're going to die of something someday. That part's inevitable, unless Jesus returns before they die. So there are those pieces of how we think about life and how we think about death that aren't always in line with how God thinks of it. So there are a ton of questions that come up, just from that, of course. Questions of, well, what about you know disease? What about death? What about evil in the world? And, you know, praying that there would be less evil or that certain acts of evil would not happen. Why do those things, why does God not do that? Why does God not, God not stop the father from beating up their child? Why does God not stop the person from raping a woman? Why does God not do these things that he can do? And um, it is, I hate it when people bring up questions like that and then say, but we don't have time for that, so we're moving on. But we don't have time for that, so we're moving on. But Spencer Peterson last week preached on that big question, the problem of evil, and address some of those. So if you have those questions, I would encourage you on the website, if you go to the section that says sermons, you can listen to the sermons, and last week's deals with that issue. So rather than trying to spend five minutes on it and not doing a good job and not doing it justice, I'll point you to that, and you can listen to a sermon that spends about 45 minutes on it and does a better job. So um, if that raises some of those questions, I strongly encourage you to go listen to that sermon. So, uh, how can Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find? Well, because the thing we ask for isn't always the thing we need. So when we ask for something, God's always going to give us something. And when he doesn't give us the thing that we ask for, it's because that's not the thing that's good for us or that's not the thing we need. God always answers prayer. Prayer is 100% effective. God always answers it. The problem is, in our mindset, is God doesn't always answer prayer the way we want him to. Sometimes God says no when we ask for something, because he says, no, that's not good for you. Sometimes God says yes, but you have to wait. And that's really hard for us. Just for people in general, that's hard. And then especially for us in the culture we live in, where everything is so instant. We have fast food. We have instant streaming for movies. Most of what we want in life, we can get just like that or within a very short amount of time. And so to have God not work on a fast food, fast life, instant timetable is very frustrating. But that's not how God works. God doesn't work on that timetable. God spent 2,000 years with Israel before he sent Christ. God had a 400-year gap of silence in terms of speaking to Israel before Christ came. After Christ rose from the dead, it's been another 2,000 years, and Christ hasn't come back yet. God's timetable is not our timetable. And God's timetable is often much slower than we want it to be. But God is good. He is that Father. And if his timetable is slower than we want it to be, then there's a reason for it. And the reason's good. Just like with a pa parent and child, there are times where your child asks for something, and you say yes, and you're going to give it to him, but you delay it for whatever reason. And there are times where your child is just not going to understand that and it seems like a really poor decision. But you can see a bigger picture and you can see, no, it's better for me to give this to you later tonight or tomorrow or next week or next year or whatever it is. That is better for you. It's good for you to ask for that. That's a great thing to ask. And yes, I'm going to give it to you, but now is not the right time. So also, uh, 
the very end of that passage. Your Father who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask. God gives good gifts. When God says no, that is a good gift, even though it doesn't feel like it. When God says yes, but wait, that is a good gift, even though it doesn't feel like it. And when God says yes and gives it right away, that is a good gift, which is a lot easier to see. One thing, because uh, this is difficult, you know, it's hard, it's easy to uh, agree with this intellectually, to see the scripture and be like, okay, that's how it is, that's great. It's a lot harder in the moment, especially in situations that are really big, that are beyond a Lamborghini. Um, it's very difficult to trust God in that, to see that God's really doing what's good. But remember that God loves you and God does what is good. He does what's good for you. He wants to give you good gifts. And one thing that's been helpful for me to keep in mind is if you look through the Gospels, Jesus does a fair amount of praying in the Gospels, but very rarely does he pray for himself. The only two times are in the beginning of John 17 where he's kind of praying for what's going to happen with his death and resurrection, and he prays that God would glorify himself through Jesus' death. But then also in uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the point where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays that he wouldn't have to die. And he prays, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Keep in mind, the one prayer that we have recorded in Scripture that Jesus prayed for himself, God said no. God said no to Jesus. Jesus said, God, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. He didn't say, please do it if you can. He gave a request, kind of almost command to God. God, take this cup from me. And God said, no, I'm not going to do that. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, of course, that would have been horrible if God had done that. That was the right thing. God said no, and that was a good gift. That was a good gift for all of us, because without it, we wouldn't have hope. We wouldn't have salvation. We wouldn't have Christ. And ultimately, even though Jesus had to go through incredible pain and suffering, on the other side of that, it was good for Christ, too. Hebrews says that when he rose from the dead, God bestowed on him power and authority that he didn't have before that. So it was good for Christ too. So keep that in mind. You are in good company when God says no to you, for God said no to Jesus himself. So, God answers prayer. But the last part of the question, I've heard people say prayer is more about aligning our hearts with God. If that's true, why ask for anything except to be aligned with God? Part of prayer is that prayer changes us. So part of prayer is to ask for things, that things would happen. But prayer is not just about changing things, it's also about changing us. So Psalm 37 and 2 Corinthians 3, Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. And then Corinthians, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. It's like, sweet, I delight in God, he'll give me whatever I want. It's like, yes, that is true. But if you look at 5 and 6, you see what that means. So 6, what does he give you? He brings forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. So what happens is, as you delight yourself in the Lord, as you get closer to him, as you spend more time with him, as you enjoy him, your heart transforms to desire more and more the things that God desires. 
And of course, when you pray for something, if you're praying for something that God desires, well, of course he's going to give it to you, right? If you pray for salvation, well, God's going to bring that because that's what he's all about. That's one of the main things he's doing. So he'll give you the desires of your heart because he transforms your heart to desire the things that he desires. 2 Corinthians, basically the verse there says the same thing. So it says, uh, we with unveiled faces, a phrase that means believers. So as believers, we behold the glory of the Lord. Although physically we don't see Christ, we read in Scripture, we can see God's glory in different ways. And as we see that, we're captivated by it, and we want to look at it. We want to look at what Christ has done on the cross. We want to look at the gospel. We want to look at God. And as we look at it, we're transformed into it. So we look at Christ, and as we look at him, we're being transformed into his image. And it says, from one degree of glory to another. So that's a process that's continuing and increasing as time goes on. So as time goes on as believers, the more we look at Christ, the more we delight in Christ, the more we become like him. The more we desire the things that God desires, the more we hate the things that God hates. So prayer does change us. Also, prayer blesses us. And I mean this not just in the sense of when we pray for something and God answers that request. Obviously, that's a blessing. But the very act of praying blesses us. There are uh, two big ways this happens. There are some others, but we're going to look at mainly these two. So Philippians 4 do not be anxious about everything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So one way prayer blesses us is as we pray, especially when we have anxiety about something or we're worried about something, God brings peace. Notice it doesn't say in this necessarily that God will take away whatever is causing that anxiety. But in the midst of that anxiety, God brings peace. And it says it's peace which surpasses understanding. So you'll be in the situation, you'll be freaked out about whatever it is, and as you pray, and sometimes this is instant and sometimes this is a process as you continue to pray about it, God brings a peace which you don't understand. You think, in this situation, I should not be feeling peace right now. How is this possible? How is it possible? Because God's giving you his peace and he's doing it to guard your heart and your mind in Christ. So that's one benefit we have, one blessing that we have from prayer. Another from Romans. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So this says, there are times where you don't even know what to pray. And that can be for a lot of reasons. You can be in a situation that's just so overwhelming that you just, you're like, God, I just don't know what to pray. I'm just overwhelmed with what I'm feeling, with what's happening. I can't handle this. I don't even know what to ask for or how to do this. It can also be there are times we don't know what to pray because we just don't know what's going on. Maybe we're praying for someone we don't know very well or someone who's far away. And it's like, all right, God, I'm praying for this person. I don't really know anything about what's going on in their life or what they're dealing with, but... And we're going to pray for them. And it says, in those types of situations, God helps us. And not just in general, but this is so cool. The Spirit himself intercedes for us. So we can be praying and get to a point where we don't know what to pray. And the Holy Spirit himself can kind of enter into that prayer and pray for us. And it's not even with words necessarily. It can just be a groaning. He who searches the 
Who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So what that means, that wording is kind of confusing, is so the Holy Spirit knows our minds. He knows what's on our mind. Even when we're not consciously aware, he knows what's on our minds and hearts. And so he can pray the things that are on our minds and hearts that we're not even aware of in the moment. So he can enter into that prayer we're praying. He can pray those things that we're not even aware of. And he intercedes for us according to the will of God. So that's another way prayer blesses us, that in those times where we don't even know what or how to pray, God actually prays for us as we're praying. And how cool is that? And if the Holy Spirit is the one praying and like actually doing the praying, well, then you know he's going to be praying things that God wants and that God is going to answer. You know the Holy Spirit's not going to pray something contrary to what God wants or what God is doing. So prayer blesses us. So in conclusion, if God is sovereign, why should we pray? Three of the big reasons, prayer is an expression of the gospel. Every time you pray, you are expressing the gospel. You are expressing through your prayer the fact that God loves you, that Christ has died for your sins and been raised from the dead for it. You're expressing the fact that it's possible now for you to approach God and ask him for things. You're expressing the fact that God loves you like a father and wants to give gifts to you as his child, good gifts. Which, the second one, why should we pray? Like a father who delights in giving his children good gifts, God delights in answering our prayers with good things. Pray because God wants to answer your prayers. He wants to give you good things. Those good things are not always going to be what you think they are as you're praying. Sometimes they'll be very different. Sometimes they may be the opposite of what you think is a good response. But God wants to give you good things. And three, why should we pray? Because prayer is not just about us asking God for things. It's also about God transforming us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Prayer is one of the pieces God has designed in this point between when we accept Christ and when we die and are fully perfected and uh, in his presence physically. Prayer is one of the pieces that God has decided to use in that process of transforming us to be more and more like God. So, um, hopefully, this is encouraging. There's a lot. If you feel like there's a lot that got left out, it's because there is. Prayer is a huge topic. Um, But yeah, God is sovereign. God's in control. And that is why we pray, because he's able to do things. God loves and cares for us and wants to do good. And that's why we don't have to be afraid when we pray. Because if God's sovereign, but he doesn't care about us, that's scary. Because then he can do things, but he might not. If God loves us, but he's not sovereign, then he wants to help us, but he might not be powerful enough to. It's only when God is sovereign and loves us that prayer becomes something that we should delight in and desire to do. And God is sovereign and he does love us. So, we'll close in prayer and then uh, Dan can come up.